Welcome to the Forest FM podcast, episode 167. I'm Killian Vigna. And I'm Zoe Bedell-Spring. This week on the show, we're joined by CEO of Salon 718 Salons, Michaela Blissett-Williams, to have an honest conversation about money and the importance of both being financially literate and free. It's not about how much you make, it's about how much you save. Because even if you got a 10% increase every year, a lot of us live beyond our means. A lot of us look at our paycheck and say, oh my God, I made $100,000 this year. You didn't. After you take out taxes, you probably made about $75,000, but you're living like you made $200,000. When you are in a financial freedom, you can make a lot of choices a lot clearer. You're not coming from a survival mode. You're coming from a living mode. You got to start in small steps but you gotta start. The problem is that people don't start. And I challenge everyone listening to this, let's just goal it for the next three months, let's try and save $1,000. So in this episode, we're joined by Michaela. Michaela's actually no stranger to us here at Forest FM. You may remember her from episode 149 for the Hair Aid Global Cutathon episode, Changing the World One Haircut at a Time. Well, fun fact, at the time of recording this episode, this goes back, I think, was it January we recorded it? I know it went out the start of February, in and around then, but we actually got chatting. Um, so this is, think about this, this is kind of like pre-coronavirus sort of era. Uh, era? That's weird. Um, so we got chatting about kind of financial literacy, the importance of financial freedom and independence. And she went on to say that how this is actually something she educates her staff on because her staff come from all walks of life, all different backgrounds. So she's made this part of her culture to instill financial literacy. Now, this is only a term I learned in the last year, to be honest, now I'm 28 years of age. It just goes to show as kids or as youngsters, we're not actually taught this. We're not taught how to deal with taxes, how to save properly, how to make our money work for us, even when we're asleep. So it just made perfect sense that considering everything going on at the moment, unemployment's at a massive high, um, maybe this is the time to have that conversation. Yeah, and Michaela being an avid learner um, and promoting growth and education within our team, uh, you know, it's she's, she's the perfect person to talk about this. And even just with the little small bits of insights we got to prepare to this episode, we knew it was going to be uh, something really, really interesting and probably a, a, an eye-opener for a lot of people. So Michaela, if you don't know her, she's the visionary behind Salon 718. She started in the basement of her brownstone in Brooklyn as a two-chair studio and she quickly expanded into four locations within six years and is still growing. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Michaela. It's great to have you back on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so being financially smart, this is today's episode um, topic. Like a lot of things in life, it comes with either someone teaching you the ropes or you've been through life experiences that taught you that. Uh, so I, I was wondering, I guess, what do you wish you had known about financial literacy earlier on and what was the context in which you learned about it? Um, so the story I usually tell is about my Aunt Joy. Like Aunt Joy used to always roll up at the barbecues and she always had a Jaguar and she lived a life that was just a little bit more, I don't want to say meaningful, but 
elaborate than most of us. And I didn't understand why or how. And she would always say it was real estate. And back in the 80s, she was buying up real estate in areas that people wouldn't even think about buying in downtown Brooklyn and in the Bronx. And she really taught me about passive income, you know, like having assets pay for themselves. So even though she was buying up these real estate, she had tenants and the tenants were able to pay her mortgage and then she was able to buy another property. And now she probably has over 20 buildings in Brooklyn, a house in the Hamptons and a villa in Jamaica. And she lives a really amazing life. And she doesn't, you, you, I don't wanna say she, she doesn't have to worry about money. There's issues with money, but she never, she could live a more abundant life because of the investments that she made. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, growing up, money is such a funny thing. Like people always say that money is the root of all evil, where I realized that a lot of people who didn't have money were struggling. So I couldn't really understand that concept. And as years went by, I realized that lack of money is the root of all evil. And you don't need to worship money, but you need to understand how money works as a tool. Um, so I think if I had to say, what would I have done differently? I probably would have said, I probably would have started buying real estate earlier, but I'm not going to beat myself up too much. Cause I bought my first place when I was about 26 years old, which is still really impressive. Pretty young. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that was kind of funny because I was living in the basement of an apartment with my girlfriend. And one night I got really, really sick. And I, I didn't realize what it was. And I said, let me come out the house with some fresh air. And when I came out the house with fresh air and I came back in, I realized it was something in the house and it was actually a carbon monoxide leak. My friend at the time was like, peace out. I'm moving out like the next day. And I'm like, I have nowhere to go. And I was just starting as an assistant and the rent was so expensive from what I was making. And I reached out to my other aunt who was in real estate and I said, I need a place. And she's like, oh my God, you know, for you to rent it, it's going to be like, and again, I'm throwing numbers out like $800, which was ridiculous because I was making $150 a week at the time. And um, she says, but you know what? There's this little apartment that's a foreclosure. It's $23,000. And I'm like, well, if it's $23,000, my payments are going to be like $400 a month versus $800 to $1,000. So I begged borrowed and plead with my parents for them to get hold paper and give me a mortgage. And that was the first property I bought, which was a one bedroom. And that really got going, you know, then I bought a two bedroom and then I bought other things, but it really made me realize from a very young age that owning it was so much greater than renting it. Yeah. Because, you know, in, in the U.S., you can put down as little as 10%. So let's say I was supposed to get a traditional mortgage at the time. To, I would have put down $2,300 as my deposit. And then I turned around and sold that place for $100,000 five years later. So to when you do the spread, that's $80,000 on a $2,300 investment. I don't think the banks are paying you that. You know <laughs> what I mean? So you always have to remember the appreciation factor when it comes to real estate and the appreciation factor is always greater than the interest rates on the bank so if you do have a little bit of money i always tell people you know 
I love real estate and also location, location, location. That apartment had happened to be right across the street from a train station. So I actually kept it for a while and rented it out, but I never had a problem renting it because people who are traveling into the city found it very attractive because of the location. Yeah, no, makes sense. It's a bit like looking at your return on investment for marketing. A lot mm -hmm. of people are scared of investing a big chunk of money straight mm -hmm. up, but then if it makes them like a few grands off a few hundred dollars, like mm -hmm. it's so much more worth it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I suppose a lot of people would see their houses almost like a liability as an asset because they're looking to buy the house that they're going to spend the rest of their lives in. But if you look at buying your first house to, just as Michaela said, rent it out, you're actually making income on that or at least covering your mortgage. Basically the rise of Airbnb, essentially. Like we see how successful yeah, that is. Until COVID, right? Yeah. Now everyone with Airbnb is like freaking out. But yes, to your point, I think we all look at it as our house as an asset, but an asset is something that brings money into you. And this is a big mistake a lot of people make. When you buy a single family home and you're not renting a part of it, it's a liability. And this I learned from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, which is a book that I really recommend. Um, you want to look for passive income generators, things that are going to make money for you without you really having to think about it. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's a lottery ticket because I do get calls in the middle of the night that something is broken and something's not working. But I think in the long run, it has given me the flexibility to even start my business. Like when you think about it, to start a business, you need some income and you need some assets to show the bank. And because I had these you know, from one property to another to another, I was able to be a little bit more bankable, yeah. a little bit more appealing to a landlord versus someone who didn't have any assets. So not only are you getting the appreciation, but you're getting the chance of people to take a, a risk on you when you're deciding to do another business because you've taken the risk on yourself to get an asset to show people that you're serious about finance. That's actually a great book that you've referenced. I read it myself in January and was sending it straight over to Zoe and actually ended up having to refer back to the book to be able to prepare for this episode. So it's it's funny that you've said it yourself. To, to pull a quote from the book, he does say that intelligence solves problems and produces money, but money without financial intelligence is soon money gone. Essentially saying that you need to be financially literate or intelligent on it. Now, from growing up, my parents always told me you need to make your own money. So to set up like lawn business, landscaping business, stuff like that as a child. That to me made me feel like I was financially literate until I read his book. And there's just so much more that you need to do to work towards financial freedom or independence. Do you think a lot of salon staff or even your staff to reference understand what it means to be financially literate or financially independent? So I think that's a great question. Um, I don't think we're having these conversations at the table with our kids like we should. Like, I think that it's such an important part. Like, I know that math, English, science and social studies is great, but financial literacy in schools should be taught as well, because the biggest mistake people make are in colleges when they get these credit cards and they run them up and then they have their student loans and they come out of school owing like thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes. They're so 
behind the eight ball at that point. Like, think about it. How long is it gonna take you to pay off $100,000 before you can actually start saving money? In our industry, I love it. It's the beauty industry. It's great. I know it's important for us to look great, feel great, and wear the finest things in life. We can wear all those things in a couple of years. You don't need to wear it the day you make the money. I know so many hairdressers who come in, they look at their job as an ATM. They know they're going to come into work and they're going to leave with $200 that day. And they've spent the money before they even left the salon. And you see it, four cups of coffee during the day, a Uber drive in, a Uber drive home, ordering dinner on the way. And then they tell me they have no money. And then we do a budget and we're like, okay, how much money are you spending on this? Oh my God, I can't believe I spent $400 on Uber this month. What would it look like if you bought one Apple stock every month instead of taking an Uber? Well, if anyone's following the stock market, even during COVID, Apple went down to $220. Apple is up to $350 today. So where else are you going to make $100? Like, you know, like you have to have money to invest. And we need to realize that instead of owning a lot of these name brands, we should be investing in those companies. Buy some Nike stock, buy some Apple stock, buy some Uber stock. Have a stake in the game. That's the only way it's going to make a change. And again, I understand we're the beauty industry, but nothing is more beautiful than financial freedom. And it's true. I liked what you said about having it in school. We were just talking about that um, with some of my friends. I think it was last week. A lot of people just don't know what to do with it when it comes like to them. When when even if it's like income from a job, like if, if it's your first really massive pay increase changing from a job to another and stuff like that, like it's just you see that amount of cash coming in and you just want to spend it straight away. And And if we had that mentality in school to kind of educate ourselves on it instead of like, I remember, I remember being taught economy, like macro and micro economy of the world. And I'm like, that's not going to help me on a day to day basis outside of school, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's basically like everything you should learn in school or everyone in school should learn taxes. Because the minute you start working, you look at your pace, yeah. you're going, wait, what? This yeah. doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. It's like that life skills. <laughs> so here's another thing I have to tell people. I personally think that strategically they don't teach us, right? Because we live in societies where they want you to be consumers because then it, you're still controlled, right? Like I have had uh, different people say to me, I don't know why you teach your staff financial literacy. Aren't you afraid they're going to leave and open up their salons? Like, and I look at it and I'm like, I would rather them leave and open up a salon. I'm not encouraging my staff to leave me. That's not what I'm saying. Then quit and stay and have resentment because they weren't taught the right thing. I want everyone working with me, not because they have to work with me, but because they want to work with me. I will have much of a better employee if that's the case. And Nothing brings me greater joy than when I'm listening to a Jonathan or a Karina or a Chris saying to the staff, oh, you should save your money because that becomes part of our culture. It, the culture isn't like, 
you know, let's just go out and like spend. And trust me, they have a good life. They're spending, but they will treat themselves every now and then. It's not like they're doing it every single week. And they understand the value of a dollar, you know? And they will say to me, oh my God, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, that's that's a good problem to have. You know what I mean? That's a really great problem to have. And I think that we as a society have to go out and search for that information. You know, no one is giving it to us. And it's like what I tell my staff, success comes before nine and after five. Between nine and five, you're working. Everything that you do before nine and after five is you developing yourself or making more than what the average person does. And what are you going to do at that time? Because we all get 24 hours a day. Yeah. How do you go about, though, like you were saying earlier, like students getting out of school and then they have like huge debt. If you're in that rat race, how do you start to shift into, well, I need to, you know, make at least one move towards financial literacy, financial freedom. Like how, how do you even... Even now, like... Yeah. Even now, yeah. Yeah, even now with COVID, yeah. So I think a couple things. You need to be smart. If you want to be a... If you want a career where you know you're not going to make that much money, don't go to a school that's going to be that expensive. Go to the best school that's not going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're going to make $35,000 a year. Why do you want to come out owing $200,000 a year? And I'm not saying that education is not important, but you have to be mindful of how you're spending your money on education. Look for a job that has a 401k. It's easy. You just spoke about taxes coming out of your paycheck and someone should give you a lesson. If you're putting 10% away, you're going to start viewing that as a tax. The first week, you may feel it, but by week four, you're not going to feel that money being missed anymore. It's almost like it's automatically being done for you. Set up an emergency fund. I think this was Dave, Dave Ramsey on the Money Makeover. This is where I got it from him. Start with $1,000. Then you start to pay off your debt a little bit at a time. Start with the smallest credit card. Pay that one off. Then use the money you use for the smaller credit card and put it towards the next credit card. And try and be as debt-free as possible. It's insane what these banks are charging you for interest mm -hmm. on your credit cards. I mean, Warren Buffett just said it at his meeting, like there is no way he could go around with 23% interest on a credit card. Like how do you ever make money on that? You know what I mean? Like have money that you can invest, but in order to do that, you gotta pay your credit cards down. You gotta make sure you don't get into any severe debt at a young age. And that usually comes in the form of um, student loans for a lot of young people you know, and start small because nothing is going to bring you greater joy than seeing that little $100 every week that you put away equate to $5,200 at the end of the year. You're going to be like, whoa, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, and then you look at your 401k plans and that's what we in America, that's like our retirement plans to our company. And you don't just put the money in there check in periodically on what you're investing in because most of them default to a savings 
where you don't want to put your money in a savings account. You want to put it in the markets and you want to be a little bit aggressive. I usually tell people if you're 25 years old, then you can take a little bit more risk than someone who's 55. You know, 55, you're 10 years from retirement, but at 25, go for it. Take that risk. Look at all the technology companies that blew up in the last 15, 20 years. Look at all these millionaires that got stock from these companies, right? Like, it's like you won the lotto if you got one of those jobs without you even doing anything where you could buy stocks. And then look at the people who bought the stocks and look at the people who didn't. And what a difference their life is versus their coworkers who didn't do it. It's like now even all we ever hear of people going is, oh, I missed the, missed the opportunity. So after the recession in 2008, they were saying, oh, I wish I bought shares then because it'd be worth so much more. But then when you talk to people like when the times are good and the stocks are going high, they're going, oh, no, it's too expensive or it's too risky. But then look at coronavirus. It dro- Yeah, it dropped 20 percent. But after about three months, it's pretty much back to where it was again. Like it, it's always going to have a slight risk but it's a long-term strategy is what you should be looking at doing. Don't chase the market. Slow and steady wins the race. Consistency wins the race. It doesn't matter if you're putting $100 every month, you're putting $100. Don't time it. There's no reason why the market should be where it is right now. Globally, unemployment is at its highest rate ever. Yeah. Right? It makes no sense. But one thing we do realize is that every single government is pumping money into it to make sure it doesn't collapse. So you can't chase it. You have to just be consistent with it. And I'm gonna be very transparent with you guys. Like, you know, I got nervous during COVID. I'm like, oh my God, the world's coming to to an end. What's happening? And I, I, I made a, I sold a position that I knew I should not have sold, but I was so scared. And that position is up, like literally 50%. Like I could kick myself. Do I kick myself or do I say, you know what, just get back in the game and just stick to what you know is true. Slow and steady wins the rate, consistency, don't time it, and you're gonna have those naysayers. All of us have those friends who are like, I wouldn't really invest in that. I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. Look and see what they have. Don't take advice from anyone who doesn't have anything that you want. Yeah, it's it's the power of like surrounding yourself by the people that, you know, can teach you something that encourage you to grow and, and all of that. And, and ask for help. Every person wants to know that you care about their opinion. And once you care about their opinion, they want to make you a rock star. They take a personal interest in it. Think about it. Think about your professors that you went to and you asked for a little bit of help. They nudged you a little bit more. They pushed you to to work a little harder. You know, but if you just show up for class and you're like, you know what, I'm the class clown and I really don't care about this, people are not really gonna take you seriously, you know? And you need to ask for help. Like, it's your responsibility, it's your life to want a better life and to look for mentors. And when you get to a certain level, become a mentor for someone. Yeah, well, speaking of, it's actually a perfect segue, I think. How do you go about encouraging your staff to set financial goals and then also follow through with them, achieve them. Are there any like concrete things that you've implemented in in your salons? So we do a backward approach. So I will ask you how much money do you want to make? 
and we'll take that, let's say $50,000, we'll divide that into 50 weeks, and then we'll break it down to how much money you need to make a day, how much retail you need to make a day to get there. And usually we start with a personal goal. What do you want? Is that a car? Is that a house? What do you need to get there? Because I believe in order to encourage people, people need to have small successes along the way. It's great for me to tell people, you know what? Save all your money, never buy anything. It gets depressing. You need to treat yourself for good behavior. <laughs> so when when you hit that 2,500, you can take 250 and buy whatever you want. And I'm just throwing things out, right? But I think when I have my staff and they're young hairdressers, and I'm going to use Jonathan, for example, when Jonathan came in, he was like, he was very focused. Like he came in for a mission. And you can tell your staff that's there to make this is not a job for them. This is their career and they take it serious. Jonathan was a young hairdresser straight out of school. He had a little bit of credit card debt. First year, his goal was pay off his credit card debt. Second year, his goal was buy a car. Third year, his goal was move to Brooklyn, right? Mm -hmm. Move to Brooklyn. Fourth year was take a European trip and it goes on and on. And now it's at a point where buy a house. But look at what that looked like from day one, that day five, you could be in a situation, year five, you could be in a situation where you're looking to buy a house. There was a woman I know that worked with me at my old salon named Brenda. She started as a housekeeper in a salon. She went to beauty school and after five years, she saved her tips and bought a house. Like those are the success stories we should be talking about in our industry. And I am not taking away from the beauty, but I think it's a disservice when we don't have these honest conversations about financial literacy. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't really hear about a lot of hairdressers retiring. They just like go out to pasture and just die. Like we don't have these great legacies of like, they retired, they're living a great life. This is what they've done. This is what they've accomplished. They might get that stardom, but the true stardom is knowing that after they retire, they're okay. Yeah. So how then do you manage the whole money as a motivator? Because there, there is no denying that a lot of people are controlled by money. That is their motivation. It's what a lot of us pick our careers based off of. Oh, if I become an accountant, I could earn this amount. Or if I become a doctor. But the reality is, like, year over year, people are almost like striving for that pay increase you might not always get it maybe you've worked hard enough to get it but how do you manage that mindset that oh this year if I get a pay increase I can get x y and z and I suppose make change your mindset from if I get to well this is what I have this is what I have to work with now I know you've already got a really good approach of well how much do you want to save or what what do you want to get but how do you manage that expectation of I'm going to get a pay rise every year? So we're in an industry where every hairdresser can give themselves a raise every day, right? Just by adding on to their ticket. But I think that it's not about how much you make, it's about how much you save. Because even if you got a 10% increase every year, let's say 100,000, now you're 110, but you're spending 150, you're still behind the eighth ball. If you're making $50,000 and only spending 40, you're actually in a better position. 
because now you have savings versus people who are living beyond their means. And that's where we as a society have to be very mindful of that. A lot of us live beyond our means. A lot of us look at our paycheck and say, oh my God, I made $100,000 this year. You didn't. After you take out taxes, you probably made about 75000 but you're living like you made 200000 You know, and then you become a slave to that job. And then you get angry when you don't get that. When you are in a financial freedom, you can make a lot of choices a lot clearer. You're not coming from a survival mode. You're coming from a living mode. And that's really, really important because if you really hate your job and you're getting 110, you might not quit because you know you have all these bills that you have to pay. But if you're making $70,000 and you know you have $25,000 in the bank, you might take that risk to quit your job and try something else because you don't have the debt to worry about. I always tell people it's not about the paycheck. It's what you do with the paycheck that's going to get you where you want to go. What about emergency funds? Would you consider that like a separate thing to just saving for your goals and, and stuff like that? Because then you're kind of doubling up on the savings, of course, and like that might scare people off as well. So, so everything in bite sizes, right, Zoe? So if I came into you and go, Zoe, you need to save $50,000 this year. It, it, it doesn't seem possible. Mm -hmm. But if I say, Zoe, you know what? We have an envelope here for you. And every day after your tips, I want you to put $20 in the envelope. And we've done this when we're taking people to Europe. Like, let's start a little fun. Let's put $20 a week in. $20,000 a week is $1,000. That's like your airfare and your hotel to go to London. It doesn't, it's more palatable. You have to do things that you can achieve so that you can hit bigger goals. The mistake that we all make is that I want a house. No one wants to start with a startup house. They want the mansion and they feel like <laughs> they can never get it. But you got you can't learn how to manage a mansion if you don't know how to manage a two bedroom. Like you got to work on those steps. And then when you do have the mansion, you don't realize that heating that mansion costs more, cooling that mansion costs more, the maintain, maintenance on that property is more you got to start in small steps, but you got to start. The problem is that people don't start. You got to start. And I challenge everyone listening to this. Let's start an emergency fund together. Hmm. Let's just goal it for the next three months. Let's try and save $1,000. That shouldn't be hard. It's $300 a month. And then look at that $1,000 and go, what do I want to do with it? Buy two stocks, buy three stocks, buy 20 stocks. But once you start, it becomes contagious. Yeah. When you create these plans of the tips with your staff, are they already at the stage where they're on board this idea of becoming financially independent that, yes, I want to allocate my tips? Or is that a discussion that you create kind of at the start of teaching them to be independent? So I think from the very beginning in our culture, they know that we are pretty financial literacy because we do do classes in the salon for them. The challenge that I have a lot of times is people, I had a girl once tell me, Michaela, you want more for me than I want for myself. And that really, that one just hit me in my heart because she had no role modeling in her life to show her what she could have. She was okay with so mediocre 
that it was sad. Like, you don't know who's coming in your doors and you don't know what their background is. And I always tell people, I came from a very humble beginning and if, and I'm not saying that, you know, I have this or I have that, but it's almost like if this chick can do it, I can do it. And that's all I want to do to in, encourage people. It's not that I show them things. It's just that I started off just like all of you. I started off shampooing hair. I started off literally working a lot of hours and I loved to work. I still love to work. I'm in the salon right now and no one else is here. I love the idea of working, but I also love the idea of knowing that I don't have to work to have money. And it's it's incredible how powerful sharing stories is. If you hear about success stories from other people, like, say, reading books or, you know, w watching interviews and stuff, like, it's so kind of distant in a way. Like, you don't have a personal connection to the, 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 the person's story. But if, like you said, like, you're sharing what you've experienced, how you started off to them, it's so, it's so powerful. And, like, everybody has a money story. We all have one. Yeah, and listen, also, I, you know, what I wanted to say to you guys is sometimes you have to work two jobs. Sometimes you gotta have a little hustle on the side. Like if, you, if you're really like in debt, you might need to kind of do something on the side and use that money to kind of pay it off because that's the only way you're gonna get out of that rut. But you're better off doing it now than in 10 years when the hole gets bigger, you know? Mm. And being entrepreneurial, isn't necessarily that you own your own business. It's a mindset. It's a mindset of where you look and see opportunity. Mind you, like I started buying real estate working for someone else. My greatest um, assets that I got was working for someone else. I had a job that I could show people that I could afford to buy something with. But I didn't just work for them. I worked and used that money to invest in something that launched something else. So a lot of times people would say, oh, well, you know, you work for yourself. That's why you can do it. It's probably harder for me to do it now working for myself than when I did work for someone, if that makes sense. You know, so when you have a job, you don't have to become an owner of anything to have that spirit. And I have seen so many of my young kids, even now with YouTube, they have their side hustle and that's YouTube or that's Instagram. And it's another form of income coming in for them that they can be using to say, okay, I'm going to use my Instagram money and invest or my YouTube money and I'm going to invest in something. But I think that there's this misconceived notion that you have to be here to be able to invest where well, you really don't have to be here you got to have that discipline. 10% of whatever you make, you're going to save and invest. I was actually watching a video on my, it came up on my Instagram feed and, and I don't know, it must have been faith or something based on this episode, but it was a guy who wanted to find a cent and make 10 grand out of it. Now, he didn't even start with his own cent. He went scouring the floors of shops until he could find one cent to then trade that. I think he bought a mint off someone it, it's the same example of the guy that turned the paper clip into a house 
but that all relates back to what Michaela was saying of having that side hustle. He started off with a cent and kept investing it and investing it and investing it until eventually he had enough money to buy a Mac bundle and sell that off for double the price. Which takes me back then to the question of, given the industry that you and your staff are in, do you encourage them to use their skill set that they provide for you to do their own side hustle or do you help them come up with I suppose new areas to explore so I don't encourage moonlighting um, just because I think as a brand we want to keep everyone together and be creative I do encourage stock marketing I investing in the stock market I do encourage buying a house upstate and doing an Airbnb Um, I just feel that when we take our craft and we start doing it in the kitchen, it diminishes what we do as professionals. And I don't think that you're still physically working, right? My whole lesson is finding something that you can invest in that you physically don't have to do. Hairdressing is hard. You're on your feet for nine hours you don't want to have to go home and do a couple clients or run on the subway and do another client. It, it, there's no reason you can't do that behind, all at your salons that you're in and then say, okay, let me take that money and invest it in something else. It's about diversifying, right? So even if you're doing your side hustle and your side hustle is the same as your first hustle, what happens if you break your arm? You can't do your first hustle or your second hustle, right? But if you break your arm and you invested in Apple stock, it's still performing for you. And it works while you sleep. It works while you sleep. <laughs> it's very similar to what my dad taught me. My dad was a pastry chef and like he was a good one. I used to always say, why don't you make the cakes or do your own thing on the side? He's like, because then I'll just always be working. And it's always mm-hmm. the same thing. He's like, if I'm going to do something on the side, it'll be something different, which yeah. is exactly what you just said. So. Mm-hmm. For people who don't necessarily know how to get started or, you know, don't know who to turn to for for mentorship, do you have any resources that you could share? Or like, I know you mentioned the book earlier. Uh, Do you have any other stuff like that? Um, I love Susie Orman as well. Um, She's a really great person to watch about money. I like watching Shark Tank, like just watching these shows and getting ideas and seeing how you can follow your dreams. And I watch Shark Tank, not so much for the ideas, but almost like, you know, one of my dreams is to be a shark that I'm in a situation where I can look and invest because, you know, you're talking about economics, macro and microeconomics. And the truth of the matter is you want to get to a point where you're investing in small businesses and you can be part of their success stories because they couldn't get funding. You become an incubator, like you go to incubators and find companies that you want to invest. And I don't think I'll be at Shark Tank's level, but there might be a hairdresser out there that has a brilliant idea and it might only cost $5,000 investment that could take them to another level. So when I watch Shark Tank, unlike most people, I am looking at how the sharks are thinking, on what they're looking, how they're viewing businesses and why they would invest. They're not investing because they like you. They're investing because they want to know what that passive income is and their return on their investment. So, you know, I think try not wasting so much time on the gossip and, you know, all these shows. Try and allocate a little bit of time for you to 
better yourself and educate yourself. And it's so interactive now and we have this information 24 seven. And just stay positive. Just try and stay positive. Set realistic goals, achieve them, and then push yourself to get to the next goal. That's amazing. Well, look, couldn't have ended it better ourselves. So listen, Michaela, thanks so much for joining us on the show. And I hope someday I'll be fortunate enough to pitch in front of you. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping I'll be able to invest. <laughs> thanks so much again. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. We know navigating the new normal isn't easy, and we want to help you reopen strong. That's why we've a variety of business resources updated regularly with information and content specific to your country. Watch, read and learn from other salon owners and business professionals. Keep up to date with government guidelines and information on available grants with the Back in Business with Forest resource page and reopening pack at forest.com forward slash C19. Don't forget all of our other free resources, including the Forest Academy Learning Portal, our Help Juice pages, the Forest blog and podcast, and our multiple on-demand webinar recordings at forest.com forward slash resources. Back in Business with Forest getting ready for your safe, strong and successful salon reopening one step at a time. So now moving on, and I kind of feel like I've been quite mute on this for the last few weeks, but as Zoe mentioned in the last episode, we do have a lot of courses in development for Forest Academy, our self-taught online on-demand training platform or training portal. Um, But we do have two new courses that we've rolled out to all of our clients, all of our users. The first one is the scheduling staff rosters. The reason we've created a new course on this is because we've also created a brand new staff rosters scheduling tool. So for this one, Forest brand new staff rostering tool lets you set and manage staff hours, schedule working days and track annual leave all from one easy to use global weekly view. So for anyone familiar with our old staff rosters, this is a game changer. Things you're going to get from this course is to be able to drastically reduce the time spent scheduling your staff's working, vacation and sick days, effortlessly manage your whole team's working week from one screen, as I said, and never double book time off again by highlighting staff vacation days. This one feature alone, the highlight staff vacation days, is a godsend. It really is. It basically just... Do you know when you put those shadow boxes over things and things uh, like you can have people's holidays stand out? So it's going to be next to impossible to double book someone for a day off. So that course, it's only about 15 minutes long. Even if you don't have the feature live in your system yet, I recommend checking that course out because we have a staff roster uh, sandbox environment that you can still play around with and schedule some scenarios The second course we have then is the Client Reconnect, Manage Overdue Clients. So this one shows you how to retain the clients you fought so hard to attract in the first place. And the feature itself actually eliminates the hole in the bucket. So keeps clients from slipping through the cracks when they're overdue and keeps them coming back. The course itself will show you how to automate the process of studying a client's history, predicting when they're overdue for a service or at risk from not coming back at all. By the end of the course, you'll reconnect with even more clients and increase revenue. So let's get them back in. The three takeaways from this are setting up your client reconnect. It only takes a few clicks. Segmenting and targeting clients who are overdue an appointment, as I've already mentioned, it's automatically done. And finally, 
retain more clients and measure the revenue generated. So there are two courses that we have live for everyone at the moment. Check them out at Forest Academy. If you need help accessing Forest Academy, just email us at forestacademy at forest.com. Uh, one last thing before we sign off, don't forget to head over to forest.com forward slash FM and subscribe to the show's email newsletter to get all the updates and guest downloadable content resources delivered straight to your inbox weekly on Wednesdays. On that note, that's all we got for this week. So as always, if you want to share your thoughts on Forest FM or this episode specifically, you can send us an email at forestfm at forest.com or leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from you and we honestly appreciate all the feedback. It really helps us tailor the conversations to what is needed right now in the industry. Otherwise, stay safe and we'll catch you next Monday. All the best. This episode was edited and mixed by Audio Z. Great music makes great moments. Montreal's cutting-edge post-production studio for creative minds looking to have their vision professionally produced and mixed. Forest FM, the Salon Owners podcast, is brought to you by Forest Salon Software. We help salon owners get their clients back in more often, spending more, and generating referrals. Let's grow.